Amen, guys. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, uh, God, we're so grateful to be here. So grateful to worship you, to fellowship uh, with your people. Uh, God, because of our lordship, Father, we are here. We honor you. We worship you. We praise you. Father, if it wasn't for you, we would be nothing. And Father, we just pray for this time as we come together, as we grow in our faith and deepen our convictions, that we leave here more unified, more zealous, ready to preach the word anywhere and everywhere. Father, we love you. We're honored just to be in your kingdom, to be members, to be your slaves. It's in your son's mighty name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, our brother Leo asked me a question this morning. He said, uh, do you get nervous? And I said, no, but then I thought about it. I go, you know what? Sometimes I do get nervous. Uh, I I especially get nervous when I'm talking at funerals. Um, But you know what? I'm not not at a dead church today. So you guys are are alive and well, living by the living word of God, worshiping the living Savior. And so I'm glad to be with you. I bring you greetings from Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm excited. This is the first time I've ever been to Eugene on a Sunday. I've been here on a Wednesday and a Friday and a Saturday and pretty much every day of the week except Sunday. Um, But it is truly an honor to be here. I I honestly wish I had come more often last year and the year before. um, But, you know, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit had me staying in Seattle. So I told Danny yesterday, in 2019, for the most part, you're going to be leading Seattle, I'm going to Eugene, and I'm going to have some fun in Eugene. Um, I, do, I do plan on spending a lot more time here in the future uh, wanting to be with you guys, and I know we all want the same thing, which is to, great, to build a great church in the name of God here down in Seattle, or down in Eugene. Amen. I am overly comfortable here. I grew up in uh, Syracuse, New York. According to Wikipedia, you guys have 155,000 people here. Syracuse has 145,000 people, so I'm a little, I'm a little used to this. Um, you know, I, I enjoy small towns. I got baptized in 2003. Um, I recently posted my, uh, my baptism video on my Facebook page because I had never seen it before. I've, I've taken up a new hobby, uh, which, which started in my parents' attic. Um, I was digging through their old boxes. My parents got converted uh, in Montana back in 1980. And um, I was going through their attic, and I found these boxes just full of hundreds and hundreds of cassette tapes and VHS tapes, old uh, ICOC K&N videos and sermons on the cassette tapes. And so my new hobby has been to convert them into digital files and post them on the Internet uh, for my own, uh, you know, inspiration. But... um, of many people have found enjoyment in them, and I found in the pile of videos my baptism video, which, to, to be very honest, I had no idea existed. Um, it got recorded on a camcorder back in 2003, long before the, the, the cool cell phones were out and everything. Um, and so I got to watch my baptism video for the first time, and it was so moving and inspiring, brought me to tears, let my wife watch it. Um, Jesse uh, Lane, if you know him, he's from Portland, he's recently moved to Seattle. And um, he was there getting, you know, watching it for the first time with me as well. It was a very uh, just awesome experience to look back at those, uh, you know, 40 minutes of sharing and everything like that. Um, back in the day, we used to do a lot more talking at baptisms. Uh, they, they pretty much took up half the church service. Uh, it was more like, who wants to share? And everyone would get in line, you know, out the door. And, well, I think this person's awesome, and here's why. And it became another sermon. Um, but it was very moving, very touching to see it. Um, to re-experience it again. Um, But, you know, that was back in 2003. And then 10 years later, after moving to uh, uh, Chicago and New York City in Riverside, California, and Fullerton, uh, the Lord uh, had blown Courtney and I back to Syracuse in 2013 to uh, assume the leadership of the church I was baptized into. And, you know, it was a great experience. Uh, so many of the members had baptized, uh, you know, so many new people that had been sent off onto the mission field, um, but they stayed in Syracuse. And so many of them were my, my old babysitters, um, you know, the, the people that I looked up to and things like that. And uh, it really was truly an amazing experience. And so it makes me very excited uh, that Rich and Hannah Hardy are moving back to Eugene. Um, that is what we're all about. We're about You know, baptizing people, raising them up, sending them out so they get raised up even more. And one day we get to benefit from that. 
And uh, you guys are truly going to benefit from having the Hardys here in the next couple weeks. I'm very excited. They're very humbled. They're very excited just to be home and to be with you guys. Um, They've got tons of vision. They know this city inside and out. They know all the nooks and crannies of the campus. They were in fraternities, sororities. They've had the full Eugene experience. And they're excited to, uh, to, to come back and, in a spiritual way, assume the leadership of the church and take everything to another level. At the same time, you are all to be tremendously commended for what you did with the cars. I mean, I understand the cars have been here almost three years and done a great job, but I mean, I think they would admit that you raised them as much as they raised you, and they are very excited. They are new people. They have transformed how they do ministry, how they love people and and build, and now they're down in Irvine doing a really awesome job. Talked to him yesterday. He's excited. God's using them already in a great way. They've They've now assumed uh, the responsibility of overseeing all of Kingdom Kids in all of L.A. And so their, their responsibilities continue to grow, and they are just very excited and, of course, are so indebted to you. But it's not just the cars. Um, I talked to Caleb Cohen this morning. Caleb sends his love. He's so excited to be here in three weeks. He's going to be preaching on uh, December 23rd. Uh, he's just so excited to come back and to see all of you. Nice. Uh, you are very loved all over the kingdom, all over the world. And um, you guys have done really a, a very remarkable job mm-hmm. of uh, holding up the banner of uh, lordship here in Eugene. The title of our message this morning is, O Come All Ye Faithful. Wow. I stole it from the Christmas Carol. It was originally written in Latin in 1751. Ninety years later, translated to English became a Christmas carol for all of us. It was, it was a rally call for the faithful to come and see Jesus, the baby Jesus. Uh, well, since then, he's died and risen again. And I think that uh, it's very important that we, as the faithful disciples, hear the rally call and that we come and worship Jesus together. You know, back in the day, there were uh, a group of hikers, and you guys are very familiar with, uh, with hiking men, And uh, these guys uh, go up into the mountains, and uh, after a few days of hiking, they they got sore naturally, and their bodies were aching, and they got a little sick, and they were hoping for some rest, and they found a hot spring up in the mountains. And so they got into the hot springs to relax and perhaps heal up a little bit, and what they found was that it didn't just help them, but it completely healed them. And so they called this place a healing spring. And when they came off the mountain, they started spreading the word. Hey, listen, you're sick. you got to go to the healing spring. Hey, you're aching. You're in pain. Go to the healing spring. Hey, you're dying. Go to the healing spring. It'll extend your life. And it became this this spot to go to to get the healing that you needed. And in time, people were going up there so often, these guys realized, we can make some money off of this. And so they built a little visitor center, which in time turned to a town of 20,000 people. Wow. An entire generation passed, and everyone forgot about the hot spring, which, well, the healing spring. And one day, uh, an older man who was, who, was, who was dying and aching shows up to the town and says, Hey, guys, where is the healing spring? And they go, well, what, what healing spring? What are you talking about? And he goes, the, the healing spring. Everyone's talking about it. What? We, we know nothing of a healing spring. And he travels around the town, and he finally finds a guy that's been around since the beginning, and he goes, do you know where the healing spring is? And he goes, oh, well, yeah. I remember a long time ago there was, there was what they called it a healing spring, but no one, no one goes there anymore. And he goes, well, would you point me in the right direction? I, I'd like to go get some healing in the healing spring. And so he goes on his way, and he gets in the water, and he's completely healed. Wow. And he goes back into the town, he starts spreading the word. How does nobody know about the healing spring? And what they had realized is so many people had their sicknesses get worse and their aches continue to ache. So many people had died prematurely because they didn't remember about the healing spring. You know, so often we get so caught up in the what we're doing as disciples, we forget why we're here in the first place. Good point. And we've built up this kingdom in our lives and our church revolves around this healing spring that so many of us have forgotten about. And we need to remember how awesome the healing spring was and therefore still is. 
and then inspire others to come to the healing spring, which we know, of course, as Jesus Christ. You know, we can never forget why we're here. We can never forget who we are here for. We must equally remember what we are doing for God. Look over in Luke chapter 14. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had an awesome Thanksgiving. Um, We're reaching out to our neighbors right now. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. Uh, But his wife and the kids went to the East Coast for Thanksgiving. He was stuck here working uh, in Seattle. And so we invited him out to our Thanksgiving dinner. And he brought what's called a turducken. Which is a chicken in a duck in a turkey. Oh, wow. And the only way I could explain it to my son is the duck ate the chicken and then the turkey ate the duck. And he goes, oh, wow, what? And it's literally, it's all been deboned. So it's, it looks like a ham, and a hunk of meat, and you just slice right through it. And you got the turkey, the duck, and the chicken. It's called a turducken. And he, uh, he smoked it at his house, and then uh, it was Cajun style, so he smoked it, and he brought it to the dinner, and it was just absolutely delicious. But I tell you that there was a banquet even greater than that back in the day. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may... They may, uh, man, I'm telling you, I need glasses. I just, I turned 31 in June, and I told Courtney, like, I feel every day of 31 right now. All right, here we go. I'm just going to start over. How about that? Steven, can you cut that clip out of the video right there? All right, here we go. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do... They may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Well, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet. And invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquets. This was an incredible banquet. This is a sermon in and of itself. And this, in fact, is not what we're going to be studying out today. We know all about the banquet. What is the banquet? The great banquet. This is heaven. Who's the creator of the banquet? This is the creator of the universe. This is God. Well, who's the servant going out to tell people, hey, come all ye faithful? Who is that? Well, it's anybody. Anyone that's spreading the gospel. Around the world, the alleyways, the towns, the poor, the crippled, the blind. This is the world that you're evangelizing. And everyone invited, of course, is everyone in the world. But you know, there's one thing here that really stands out to me, and that's the excuses. There's a lot of analogies here. There's a lot of stuff to pick apart and parallel to the 21st century. But I mean, there's just one thing right here that has never changed for 2,000 years. No matter how much you spread the gospel, no matter how awesome the banquet is, there are still people that make excuses as to why they're not going to come. 
And, and these, are, these are, in a worldly sense, valid excuses. Great reasons to not give your heart to going and, and coming to the great banquet. But not in the eyes of God. In fact, when God hears these excuses, he gets ticked. And I mean it. I mean, the Bible says the master of the house gets angry. Wow. Gets angry. He goes, well, 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 that just means you didn't invite the poor, crippled, and the blind. He goes, actually, I did. He's furious. He says, well, go out there and make them come in. Wow. You know, when, when we're sharing our faith, we're not just inviting people on out to church. We are inviting them out to church. Then they don't respond. You increase your passion a little bit more. And at some point, I mean, you are dragging them and making them come in. Why? Because you know how horrible the world is. And it's not just about coming to the banquet. It's about not going to hell. And we make them come in. Um, I told you I was going to tell you about my neighbors. So um, my wife and, and I and the kids, we, we went to this park near our house. It's called Ravenna Park. And uh, Brinton had just gotten a new kite. Oh, nice. He was so excited. I mean, it was one of those fancy ones from the dollar store. I mean, we, we set this whole thing up. It's amazing how complicated a dollar store kite can even be. And it takes me a while, but I get this thing together. I'm kind of proud of myself. I said, look, I figured it out. And I give him the kite, and I mean, he's so excited. He grabs that string. He un- unravels it a little bit, and he goes running across the field, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, screaming like a little kid would. So excited. And after about 10 or 15 minutes... This German shepherd comes running out of nowhere, and he sees this kite, and he jumps up, he grabs this thing, brings it to the ground, rips it to shreds, and Brinton is just standing there devastated, and he's crying, my kite, my kite, and I look over, and I I feel so bad, I'm like, oh, buddy, it's okay, it was only a dollar, we can get another one, and he goes, this is my kite. And you may wonder, well, where was the owner of the German Shepherd? Well, those are our neighbors. So they come over, and they are just so kind. They go, we are so sorry. We live across the street. We'd love to uh, go. go. We have three more kites, nice ones. I can, I can nice give ones. one to your son. <laughs> and, and I go, you know what? Don't, don't worry about it. It's totally fine. What's your name? And we got to know each other, and it was awesome. We just kicked it off. I say, hey, listen, in two days... Uh, we're celebrating my daughter's first birthday party uh, up in Edmonds. Would you guys like to, to come and, you know, meet our family? And they go, absolutely. You probably felt bad about the kite. <laughs> and so uh, that was their first, uh, you know, kingdom uh, experience was my, my daughter's first birthday party. And they just, they brought gifts. I mean, they were just so warm. Uh, they immediately just became part of the family there in Seattle. Uh, they've been coming to church ever since. Wow. Uh, within a month, all the disciples are like, when are we going to study the Bible with these guys? I mean, are, are, are you going to study the Bible with them or what? Like, well, how come they haven't done any Bible studies? I said, chill out. Just relax. We're building what's called a friendship. <laughs> and we will get to the studies eventually. Just, I got this. Relax. And months go by, months go by. They've been out to church. Um, you know, they, they started to uh, ask Sierra, who you know very well. Uh, to come over and babysit for, for them. And, you know, they're, they're very, uh, very professional. They, they're both nurses in the, in the Seattle area. And, um, you know, they're a little comfortable financially. And, uh, you know, they even came to the marriage retreat a few weeks ago. And they, they even uh, booked an extra hotel room so that Sierra could stay in there with their kids. Uh, but it was at the marriage retreat, God really broke their hearts, and they saw their need for God. We've been studying the Bible ever since. Wow. And I'm very excited because this last Thursday, we did a Bible study, and he told me, um, you know, Joel, I've been so inspired. I told my wife yesterday, I'm going to get baptized, and then I'm going to baptize you, and then we're going to start what they call a Bible talk in our house, and we're going to convert all of our neighbors. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And, I, and I, I just told him, that's the vision. <laughs> That's it. You know, it's amazing how much God is working and we don't even see it. Yeah. 
I mean, our hearts get torn up and we freak out. We're hyperventilating. Oh my gosh, life is over. Like Brinson, and you don't realize that God is working to bring people into the great banquets. A woman got baptized over a year ago in Seattle, and she's actually the childhood friend of my mother-in-law, Leanne. And Leanne reaches out to her. They grew up together in Walla Walla, Washington. And she comes on out. She starts studying the Bible. She gets baptized. And she's been bringing her, her husband, who's not a disciple. He's a Catholic, very intense Catholic. Uh, he's been Catholic for 59 years. And he's been coming out to church on and off, but he's never really committed himself to studying the Bible or anything like that. Well, just this past week, he reaches out to me and he goes, hey, Joel, I'm seriously converting. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about converting to being a member of your church. I don't think I can ever stop being Catholic, but I'm thinking about being a member of your church. <laughs> I said, well, we're getting somewhere. You know? <laughs> and so he comes on over to the house on Friday night. We study the Bible for nearly two hours, and it was so awesome just to see how God has been moving in his heart for over a year. He's an executive at Boeing. He's a fantastically amazing, awesome guy. He could, he could easily be a shepherd in the church. And, and we've been working on him for over a year. How many relationships do you have that maybe, maybe they're not ready to study yet? But you just persevere. You keep working on them. You invite them over and over and over and over. And you build what's called a friendship. And eventually their heart warms up and it breaks to the message that they come to you and say, we want to study the Bible. We want to get baptized. I've now seen how awesome your church is. It's different than any, any church I've been in. You guys actually believe in the Bible. And they come to you. Wow. I'm telling you that day's going to come. That day's going to come. So often we think that it's all about us and our evangelism and how many people we're meeting. And it's going to be through us that God's going to move around the kingdom. It's going to be great. And yet sometimes it's just your actions that are going to please God. And then he's going to bring someone through the back door that goes, hey. So I heard you guys baptize people. Uh, I'm ready to be a disciple of Jesus. So what can you show me? And I'm telling you, it happens all the time. Wow. See, the call of a disciple is to persevere, that we're not going to give up because people say no, but we're going to believe that God wants his house to be full and we can be the ones to fill it. But it may take some time. You're all to be commended. A church of 36 in this last year has added 18 people to the church. I mean, that would be the equivalent of LA having almost 500 additions this last year. You are to be commended for how God has used you in a great way. And you may not feel it. You're sending people out. A few people decide to leave here and there. But, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we can work on a few of these things. God is going to get, get this church up and going. You guys are going to grow, be busting at the seams. This place is not going to fit the church that you're going to build. You know, this thing is amazing, but we're not going to talk about it. What we are going to talk about is the cost, because every great banquet has a cost. That's true. I mean, you ever really wanted to go somewhere and you just can't because you don't got the money for it? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was really excited to find out that Raffi is coming to Seattle. If you guys know anything about Raffi, down by the bay where the watermelons grow. If you got kids, you know what I'm talking about. And I found out he's coming to Seattle. I said, oh, this is fantastic. Cheap tickets, right? Five bucks, ten bucks. I'm looking them up online. Like the cheapest tickets way up in the balcony, all the way in the, in the back where you can't see nothing, $65. And I go, well, I guess we're not going to Raffi next year. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of times where there's something we want to be a part of and you just can't afford it or you think that you can't afford it. And these people in Luke 14, they could have afforded it. This guy could have brought his wife to the great banquet. This guy could have waited to go see his field. I mean, these excuses, maybe they make sense and they're logical, but they're unspiritual. And if somebody really wanted to make it happen, they could make it happen. So Jesus proceeds to go from the parable of the great banquet to talking about the cost because we've got to count the cost if we're going to be a part of this incredible banquet that God has prepared. Our first point this morning is the first cost, which is an unrivaled love. An unrivaled love. In Luke 14, verse 25, Jesus says, the Bible says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, 
his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, God right here expects that anybody who's going to be in the great banquet here, anyone is going to give him an unrivaled love. What does this mean? That you love God more than you love anybody. You love God more than you love anything. You'll do whatever God wants you to do because your love compared to God compared to anything else is unrivaled in comparison. God is second to nobody. God competes for no first place. He's already number one. And that's the love that God deserves, an unrivaled love. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us have little idols that we hide under the bed and and when it gets rainy outside and we get a little bit sad, we go to those idols. And it may be a relationship, it may be food, it may be yourself. But there are these little things that come before your relationship with God. And the first thing you do when you wake up is not, I'm going to go to God in prayer or I'm going to go have a great quiet time. I'm going to spend time with my Lord. You don't. It's these other little idols. And you can make idols out of great things. You can make idols out of a spouse. You can make idols out of your children. And I'll be honest, in 2018, I did that. I made idols out of my children. And nearly every morning, my routine was get up, feed the kids, take care of the kids, and then go have a quiet time. And you may go, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you what. I I didn't feel super close to God. I felt like I was maintaining my relationship with God. I didn't feel like I was soaring to new heights. You go, what's the big deal? I don't think we should ever settle for being good Christians. I don't think we should ever settle for being great Christians. I don't think we should ever settle for anything less than our very best. And so I decided I'm going to get up early every day. So I wake up around 5 o'clock every weekday now, and I go on a long prayer walk. And I, I read my Bible a little bit, and then I get the kids. And then I get food in front of them, and then my day starts. And it's not easy to wake up that early, but it's been worth it. I've been walking with my God. I don't miss quiet times. I look forward to my quiet times. I mean, I even cracked open a new Bible the other day. I said, we're going to get started fresh here. And I I think that's where we need to get to in, in the Eugene church. I think, let's be honest, I think we've got some weaknesses that have been exposed. We've got some idols in our lives, and we need to push ourselves a little harder. And you go, well, there's no way I can get up that early. I mean, I have to go, I have to, go to bed at this time. Listen, your morning starts in the evening. And the key to getting up early is getting to bed early. And you've got to do whatever it takes to get close to God. Maybe you can't join everyone for that late night movie. Maybe you can't join everyone for that Red Robin run. But you've got to get to bed so that you can get up and have a great time with God. It's not maintaining or sustaining an okay relationship with God, but that you're allowing yourself the opportunity to soar to new heights. Because God deserves an unrivaled love. This means God doesn't want to compete with anybody for that top spot. This means that God doesn't want to be compared to anybody else. This means that God is God no matter what idols that we have in our life. He's still God. And I think that we need to get those convictions. You know, the immature person will read this passage and go, wow. So in order to love God this much, I need to love these people less. That's not what God is saying. That's not what God is saying. God is not saying love anybody less. In fact, keep all those relationships. Don't burn any bridges. Don't cut anybody off. You got to keep loving all these people. Stay in touch with all these people. It just means you got to love God all the more. It means you've got to push yourself all the more. And and that's going to take an exerted energy. This is going to wear you out. But it's not going to be because you love everybody else. That's the the easy way out. And that's going to actually long term make you suffer as a Christian. Wow. No, this is, this is wow, I, I, I really love my mom. I, I really love my kids. Now i got to love God all the more. You guys with me here? Look over in Matthew chapter 5. A rapper once said, I had a dream I was going to buy my way to heaven, but then I went and spent it on a necklace. Mm. 
<laughs> now, there's a lot of people out there that think they can buy their way into heaven. But Jesus' spiritual logic was quite the opposite. In Matthew chapter 5, he gets up to preach his very first sermon. And trust me, Jesus was excited for this day. I mean, he had waited 30 years for this day. He had gotten all the training. All the, all the rabbis knew who he was. I mean, he was looking forward to this. And in chapter 5, verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he knew this was the day. And he goes up on the mountainside. He sits down. And the disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that was the first thing he said? Isn't it amazing? The first thing Jesus wanted to talk about was the kingdom. It was the first thing he wanted to talk about. But even before he could talk about the kingdom, he wanted to talk about who would be in the kingdom. Who would be in the great banquet. And he doesn't say it's going to be the rich guys. It's not going to be the guys who have everything. He says it's going to be the poor in spirit. And you guys aren't really reacting to this passage because you don't understand this passage. I barely understand this passage. Why? For the sole fact that you live in America. Americans will never understand this passage. Never. Never. No YouTube video, no documentary, no book. Nothing will teach you what this scripture says right here. Now, I'll tell you someone that, do, that does understand this passage. His name's Conan. He's in our brother. He's one of our uh, disciples up in Seattle. He's a great brother. Now, Conan grew up in a slum um, about two hours outside of Abidjan, Ivory Coast. And I've been there. In 2015, we went to Abidjan for the first ever African Missions Conference. It was incredible. And then we all jumped on buses, and we went out to these slums. Wow. And I saw true poverty for the first time. And when we got out there... Imagine an entire village with no furniture, no blankets, no, 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 just, just, just everything was cement, cement streets, cement stairs into the cement homes with cement walls and cement roofs, cement holes in the ground where everyone goes to the bathroom. And the streets were flooded with children with only a few adults here and there because most of the kids, their parents had died or they'd been abandoned. True poverty. These kids had nothing, nor the ability to get anything. Wow. In fact, Blaise Fumba was our tour guide that day, and he says 25% of these kids are going to die before the end of the year. It was June. In the next six months, 25% of these children are going to die. And I just cried. I, just, I was poor in spirit. I just cried. It broke my heart. And I took a lot of pictures that day, but one of the pictures uh, stayed with me forever. To this day, I printed it out on a big 8.5 by 11 and I stuck it on my refrigerator. Because we, we, uh, we pulled into uh, the, the area with some cars and some buses, and the kids just flooded us, begging for money. You can see all the rib cages, uh, hygiene was terrible, teeth missing. It was as bad as it gets. And, um, you know, they're literally yanking on your clothes, begging you for money. These kids got nothing. And, um, you know, it was very intense. Uh, we, we had bags of spaghetti. Uh, no sauce, just spaghetti. And um, then these other little Ziploc baggies of uh, Kool-Aid. And um, so we, we handed it all out, but we had one bag left of spaghetti. And the woman that was in charge has a bag of spaghetti and she's holding it like this and she's got about 30 to 40 children just reaching for this bag of spaghetti begging for it it was it was all we had left and i snapped a picture right as all the hands were up snap trying to get this bag of spaghetti and uh, i came home printed off put it on my fridge and i said our family is never going to forget how fortunate we are to live in america Every time we open the fridge, we're going to see this picture and remember how good we have it. That's true poverty. Kooning grew up there. God rescued him. He pulled him out, made him a disciple in the Abidjan church. He made his way here to America. He's now learning English. Um, He's getting pretty good at it. Kooning gave missions contributions. Why? Kooning gets it. He gets it. He's been there. 
Those of us who struggle with missions, it's, it's not because you don't have the money. It's because you don't get it. It's because you don't understand how good you got it. Mm. You know, Jesus right here, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, until you get this, you don't get the kingdom. Until you get poor in spirit, until you have that, like those children in a bobo, spiritually, you don't get the kingdom. What do I mean by that? You realize you are nothing, and you have the ability to get nothing. I mean, when you're at that point spiritually, and you realize as a disciple, even though I'm in Christ, even though I'm saved, even though I'm in the church, I have nothing, I am nothing, well, I, am with, I am nothing without God. I can say nothing. I can do nothing. I deserve nothing. I might as well just end it all right here. Until you get to that point, you don't get it. And you don't get the kingdom. Would you be shocked if I told you that we waste our time teaching people Matthew 6.33? It does not apply to Americans. See, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That doesn't apply to Americans. It doesn't. The government gives us everything we need. I mean, you don't have food, you go get free food at the food bank. You don't got money, you go to the government, they give you checks. You don't got a place to stay, there are shelters everywhere. That's why you see the same homeless people begging on the corner for years. In many places, Africa, India, Manila, Mexico, these third world places, they are so poor, you don't have money, you die. You don't have food, you die. You don't have shelter, you die. That is the only alternative. And until we get there spiritually, we don't get to go to heaven. Our lifelong desire needs to be to become poor in spirit. To get to a point spiritually where we realize, man, I am nothing without God. I can do nothing without God. If I don't have a quiet time, I die. And until we get there, we don't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, as disciples, we dedicate our life to this. We dedicate our life to becoming poor in spirit. And I think we've got a long way to go until we give God the unrivaled love that he deserves. Let's go back to Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, Jesus gives us the second cost in verse 27. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The second cost of discipleship is an unceasing dying. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You're right, it doesn't make any sense. Unceasing dying? I thought you just die and then that's it. No, Jesus says you got to die and continue to die every day. You take up your cross every day. You die to yourself every day. Unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it, will, it, it, it can't produce many seeds. It cannot bear much fruit. Yeah. I prefer that version a lot better than King James. I mean, the Bible tells us that for us, we as disciples are committed to dying every day. Yo, that doesn't sound very fun. That doesn't sound very fun. You know there's one thing that God can't do? God can't do, and he'll never be able to do it. Ever. He can't do it spiritually, and he can't do it physically. And that is, fill up a full cup. I mean, can you do it? I mean, God can't do it. It's just not possible. If the cup's already full, there's no room for anything left. It cannot be filled up. Wow. And so often we treat the gospel that way. We go up to people, we go, hey, I know your cup is full, you got a great job, you got money, you got school, you got a degree, you got a family, your life is good, you're just missing one thing. Let's just add Jesus to it. And Jesus looks at them and he goes, there's no room for me in here. They don't need me. Their life on earth is good. They are actually saving their life here on earth. And yet the challenge of a disciple is to call people to die unceasingly. Yeah. To empty themselves of themselves so they can get filled up with Jesus. That is the only way to follow Jesus. That's the only way. And when people are full of excuses, and when people are full of their own logic, and when people are full of their own dreams and plans, God can't use that person. We need to challenge people. 
to die unceasingly. Come on, bro. You go, well, that's a very negative point, Joel. <laughs> that's a very, I'm, I know. I, I know it's a very negative point. As a famous preacher once said, I'm very positive this is a negative point. <laughs> I know. There's no like awesome way to look at it. This is the call of Jesus. This doesn't feel good. Well, this scripture's not going to feel good either. Look over in Ezekiel chapter 9. I mean, this is perhaps one of the scariest scriptures in all the Bible. You got you to make your way to the books like Ezekiel. At some point in your discipleship, you got to study out some of these prophets because they got a message to tell us. It's very applicable. In Ezekiel chapter 9, we see this incredible vision that's extremely challenging because it doesn't just apply for them then, but we know that the Old Testament is a spiritual foreshadowing or a physical foreshadowing of spiritualities of the New Testament. And so when we read these things, they apply to us in a spiritual way. And you're not going to like this scripture. And I know that because I don't like this scripture. This is one of those ugly truths that you just got to look in the mirror and admit you got a long way to go. You ready to read it? Are you sure? I mean, do we need to say a little prayer here first? Okay, all right. I'm going to trust that prayer earlier worked enough. Let's, let's read this together. Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. So Ezekiel is in the temple, and he looks to the north gate, and in comes six guards and a man with a writing pad. And they've got a, they've got a little mission to go on. Now, the six guards are carrying these devastating weapons. Okay, They're not carrying swords. If they were swords, the Bible would have said they're swords. In the Hebrew, these are more than likely battle axes. Keep that visual in your mind as we continue to read. Verse 3. Now the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherubim in the sanctuary where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. It was about to leave. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women, and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the, with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing, I was left alone. I fell face down, crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen and the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. Seven men walk in. Six with battle axes, one with a writing pad. Seven altogether. Amen, U of O graduates. Amen. These seven men, of course, the number seven throughout the scriptures means complete. These guys are bringing complete destruction to the city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel realizes this and he cries out to God. He falls prostrate. He he cries out to God. He goes, Lord, are you going to destroy everybody here? I mean, this is is bad. In Ezekiel's mind, no one was spiritual in Jerusalem. And God goes, I just might. And he sends these guys out. Now, the guy with the writing pad, his job was to walk into a household and look at everybody. It was the man, the children, the, 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 the women, the old, the young, the maids, everybody. And if he could tell that your heart was broken, if you were lamenting and grieving, which in the King James Version, if you were sighing and crying, you get a mark on your head. Now, the word mark in the Hebrew is tau. 
towel. You know what a towel is? A towel is the Hebrew letter that goes like this. It's the cross. Wow. And this is an Old Testament prophecy. And so the man with the writing pad would walk in, and everyone either got the towel or they got the axe. Household by household. And Ezekiel's in the temple. I mean, he hears the screams outside, and he cries out to God, are you going to kill everybody? These guys are out killing. Are you going to take everyone's life? Now, what was... What were the stipulations here? Well, you either get the towel, which means you were sighing and crying, which was a good thing. It means that you see the sin of the, of the people. You, you see the sin of the world, and you're broken by it. And, 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 and you, you lost your happiness. You understand as disciples, we are to be joyful but not happy? They're not the same thing. You can be full of joy, content in your walk with God, joyful in hope, but patient in affliction. You've got to realize... That this is not a happy place. And when you come to a place spiritually where you understand where things are at in a spiritual manner, it is not a happy place. It breaks your heart. Disciples ought to be, ought to have times every week where we are sighing and crying because we understand the state of the world that we live in. When we see our brothers and sisters in sin, the Israelites in Jerusalem sin, it should break our hearts. There should be sighing and crying. And then we're worthy of the towel. But then there are the others who got the axe. And this is probably the majority of those in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel's mind, this was probably going to be everybody. Mm. Now, what deserved the axe? Well, in verse 9, God says the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. Wow, this must be immorality. This must be greed. This must be some wicked idolatry. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice, they say. The Lord has forsaken the land the Lord does not see. You know what ticked God off the most? Is that people considered the idea that he was not with them anymore. Wow. Just the thought of where's God? Why is God letting this happen? God must not be here. God must not be in here. And the whole time he's in the temple. And then he makes his way to the threshold and says, I'm about to leave. I'm giving you a chance to get the towel. But if you don't repent, you get the axe. I told you you're not going to like the scripture right here. I mean, I told you. I knew it. I imagined your faces before we read it. I knew I knew this was going to be the response. Because that was my response. This is, this is not an encouraging passage. It's not supposed to be encouraging. It's not supposed to be something that you read and you go, wow, awesome. I'm going to find so much joy in this scripture right here. No, this, this is a convicting scripture. This cuts us to the heart. We got to hate our sin. We got to hate the sin in our brothers and sisters. We got to hate the sin in the world. And when you get it, you get the towel. And if you don't, you get the axe. You know, we, we, we get it. I mean, we get it to a degree. I mean, we look around the world and we go, wow, this is a lost place. There are people here that just, that just need God. We get it to a degree. Um, you know, there was a, a missionary from the state of Washington. I don't, I don't even know if this, what he was teaching or what church he was in or whatever. But the article said, he's a missionary. I'm going to call him a missionary. So he travels over to India. He's preaching the word in India. And you may have saw this in the news. But he's preaching there. He's very effective. Him and his friends are there. And they're, they're you know, in, in their minds converting people and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he, he looks over and he hears about the Andaman Islands, which is a, a group of islands off the coast of India. And he goes, I want to go preach over there. Now, there's one island in the Andamans called Sentinel Island, which to this day is untouched by mainstream society. Oh, wow. In fact, everyone over there is indigenous. And if you fly a chopper overhead, they're going to shoot arrows at you. They're going to throw spears at fishing boats. Uh, over the years, a few people have washed up on shore, um, you know, their boats have come up on shore, and the people just kind of attack and kill these people because they, they just want to remain isolated. Wow. And this missionary goes, I want to go there. <laughs> and so he hires a fisherman to take him as close as he's legally allowed to because the, the Indian Coast Guard is just constantly circling this place to keep people away, knowing they're going to get killed if they get closer. Wow. And so this guy gets on a fishing boat, then he jumps in his tiny kayak, and he makes his way onto the island. Wow. And he's very confident. He's got his Bible in hand, and he wow. walks up on the shore, and he, he goes through the woods, and he finds a village. And the village is full of huts, and he says there's about 
10 people living in every hut. And he counts about 250 people living in the village. And as he approaches, a tiny boy comes running through the woods, according to his diary. A tiny boy comes running through the woods and starts throwing uh, spears at him. And he's dodging it a little bit. And eventually he blocks one of the spears with his Bible and kind of drops it and books it for the shores. And he gets to the shore, jumps in the water, swims back to the fishing boat, spends the night and comes back the next day. After a few hours, the fisherman got a little concerned. And so he circled the island. And what he saw when he came to the other side of the island are a bunch of the, the, uh, the indigenous people dragging his body along the side of the shore. Obviously, he didn't make it. What I was so impacted by is the fact that this guy was bold enough to get to the ends of the earth before us. Wow. I mean, have you been to the Andamans? This guy did it. He made it happen. He raised his own money, made his way to India, got in a little boat, personally paid for the fishermen, swam his way over to the island, shared his faith, and got killed for it. Now, I don't know what gospel he's preaching. I don't know what church he was trying to build. But all I know is he had the zeal that we all need to have. I'm excited for 2019. It's going to be the year of boldness. The winter workshop is going to be themed great boldness. You see, you may not be there yet. And that's okay. You're in good company. You realize in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, right before Paul gets into chapter 12, which we all love, he goes, man, God's grace is is sufficient for me. God's, you know, I'm, I'm now stronger because I'm weak. We all love that passage. Right before that in chapter 11, he goes, I'm weak. He goes, I'm struggling. In fact, I remember the time when I was in Damascus and I was preaching the word and I got scared because the king was after me and I had the disciples lower me in a basket through the wall and I ran for my life. Mm. You ever been weak? It's okay. Paul was weak. We've been there before. Mm. But you don't want to stay weak. You want to get through your weakness and get strong again. Amen? Amen. You know, we got to get strong. If you're not super bold, that's okay. Let's get strong. Let's get bold by the end of 2019. Let's really get a conviction to be filled with a boldness, to allow God's boldness to just flow through our veins. That's the group of disciples that God wants in Eugene. That's the group of disciples God wants in Portland and Seattle and everywhere. And it's got to be a conviction of ours to get bold, to give God not just an unrivaled love, but to have that heart, to have an unceasing dying. Point number three, you go, well, it's been 52 minutes. Aren't you going to end soon? I don't know. I don't get to come down here very often. So. Point number three, an unqualified renunciation of all things. Luke chapter 14. If you missed that, an unqualified renunciation of all things. In Luke 14, Jesus gives us another great count, cost account. In verse 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. To this day, the scripture is the hardest scripture for me to obey. And probably for you as well. To give up everything, to renounce everything for the sake of the gospel and for who we're following Jesus Christ. We've got to surrender everything. This is not a new message. Elijah did it. Paul did it. Simon Peter did it. He left his family. And of course the others in the boat as well. But our calling of God is to renounce all things. That there is nothing worth holding on to over your relationship with God. You know the thing that we got to realize. Is that we are going to lose this war no matter what. I mean, any way you slice it, you're going back to battle against God. You're going to lose, period. And so you might as well just give up now. Just surrender everything over to God. Look over in Psalm chapter 46. What does this mean to surrender everything over to God? 
Let's read together in verse 8. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know what the scripture teaches right here is that we need to get to a point where we appreciate God so much that we just surrender everything. The Bible says that be still and know that I'm God. You're not going to know that God is God until you be still. And be still doesn't mean stand still. Even you can stand still and still be kind of fidgety. It doesn't mean sit still. You can sit still and still be a little fidgety. He says be still. Be still. In the Hebrew, to relax. Chill out. Relax. Sort of like that feeling right before a massage or right after a massage where it's just like totally relaxed. We got to get to that point spiritually. I, I, the better translation of the word still here is actually sink. Now, it doesn't say sink because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Sink and know that I am God. What does that mean? But that's actually the better translation. Have you ever started sinking? Have you ever started sinking? Over the summer, we went swimming. And my son started sinking. And I dove in the pool. I grabbed him. I threw him on the side of the pool. He was so scared. Because when you're sinking, you're helpless. Yeah. You're hopeless. There's, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you I've, I've never started sinking. I've always been a pretty good swimmer. But I've saved a couple kids from swimming. One being my son. Another one being back in Syracuse a few years ago. It, it's horrifying to watch somebody sink. It's horrifying. They, they look completely helpless and hopeless. Wow. Their face... Their, 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 their expression, everything about them. It's scary to watch somebody sing. God says, you've got to get that way spiritually. Wow. You've got to sink spiritually. You've got to get to a point where you're helpless and you're hopeless and you understand at that point that God is God. And it's only God that can help you in that point. So often we think that life is about keeping our head above water and and, you know, just staying afloat. Let me tell you, life is about sinking. Life is about getting to know who God is, being poor in spirit, allowing yourself to sink into the grace of God. Wow. To confess your sins, to be open about where you're at, to be real with yourself so you can be real with your disciples, with your brothers and sisters, so you can sink into God's grace. Wow. So that you can sink into the will of God, regardless of whatever plans or or, or desires or dreams that you have for your life, you sink into the will of God, where you, you allow yourself to just be totally taken away by God and whatever his will is for your life. You want me to date this guy? You want me to date this girl? You want me to go to this city? You want me to work over here? And you sink into the will of God. You sink into the plan of God. You actually allow yourself to get fired up about where you're at in life right now. Wow. Yo, you know what? This was a part of God's plan. I should be happy right now. I should be joyful right now. As long as I got something, I've got everything in the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10 says you gave this stuff up. You got a hundred times as much in this present age. You allow yourself to sink into the plan of God. You sink into the fellowship. You know, it's so easy to talk to everybody and socialize when you're an extroverted person. When you're an introverted person, it's not so easy. It's hard to get close, to really connect, to really trust people. But to sink into the fellowship. To allow yourself to be loved is a very challenging thing for some of us to do. Some of us grew up and, you know, there was abuse or there were drugs or there were situations in our families that really hurt us and disabled us from trusting other people. And we've got to sink into the fellowship, allow ourselves to be loved by God and loved by our brothers and sisters. And love doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always feel good. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. And then challenged him to give up everything. I, didn't, I don't think that felt good because his face was downcast and he walked away sad. <laughs> We've got to love each other that much. Yeah. We're going to call out the sin in the households. And I know there's sin in the households. We're going to call out the sin in the Bible talk. There are idle people not sharing their faith. You call it out. Mm-hmm. You love people enough to call them to a decision to make Jesus Lord of their life again. Yeah. We've got to sink into the will of God. Walter Davis was a man back in um, 
On June 6, 1944, on D-Day, you guys are in the Veterans Building, I thought I'd share this with you. Back in June 6, 1944, on D-Day, this was the only man who swam to the shores, not with a rifle in his hands, but he wanted to paint the scene. And so there are a few paintings of him on the shore where he's painted the boats, and he's painted the people, and he's painted the hills, and he's painted the battle. His goal was to capture the moment on paper. And you go, what an idiot. I mean, is this guy crazy? I mean, people, there are bullets flying, and he's trying to bring, you know, brush the paper and capture the scene. No, no, no. It was, he got the big picture. He got the big picture. If I die trying to paint the scene, well, at least they'll see partial of what's happening right now. But, you know, it's amazing to me that somebody would risk their life an unqualified renunciation of all things to capture a moment for generations to come. Wow. For us as disciples, our job is to capture the moments. Not just for those here at war, but for our children that will be disciples someday. Yeah. For their children that will be disciples someday. That we will lay the groundwork for the kingdom to come. For generations and generations. Prayerfully, you define your faith a little bit differently after reading these passages. And you understand that Jesus expects an unrivaled love. God would be second to no one. That we have a heart to die unceasingly and be dedicated to the process of dying every day. That we will have a heart that gives God everything, an unqualified renunciation of all things. I challenge you, come, all ye faithful. Now let us not remember the line right before that. Joyful and triumphant, O come, all ye faithful. Amen.